So I have some feelings. Good feelings? Depends which movie we're talking about. Uh, I, I, okay, I feel like we, we both have very good feelings of, about Crimson Peak. Based on the conversation that we were having earlier, I feel like you and I have very good feelings about Crimson Peak. Specifically Tom Hiddleston and Crimson Peak. Yeah, yes, yes. Seriously, was he carved out of stone? Like what? Of course. My God, like like he. Ugh. It's those cheekbones. It's like Benedict Cumberbatch. They were both carved from the same marble by two different artists. Yeah, yes. He's he he was he was. So Dave Michelangelo carved a statue and left it under wraps for a century or two. And we'll we'll we'll, we'll get into it. I'm still trying to process how I feel about scary stories um oh wait should we should we start actually like for sinking first since we're just just diving right into it <laughs> oh yeah let's do it Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies we're talking about before you listen. I'm one of your hosts, Ray. I'm your other host, Chris. And we're 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 in uh we're yeah, we're in Crimson Peak. We're in Aladdin Manor or Hall. Uh there's a bunch of red clay everywhere. It's it's, it's we're sinking it's terrible oh oh god oh god hold i, I just dropped my mic into the red clay vat uh, uh <laughs> Ryan, can you hear me i can't find my microphone <laughs> we're done <laughs> so today we're talking about crimson peak obviously and scary stories to tear to tell in the dark um which chris and i both have some feelings about but we'll get to that this is Part two of our Del Toro marathon. Uh, so last week we reviewed. Uh, oh god, <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. I my god, my brain just. <laughs> His brain just totally farted. That's how bad it was. Oh wait, I remember now. Hold on, I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, as long as you remember the books. Can we, can as long as you remember it? the books. And <laughs> not the movie. Take, take two. two. Okay. Take two. Take two. Take two. Uh, so last week we reviewed uh two movies uh that Del Toro both directed, uh The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, and we're following up with a little spin on that. So Del Toro only directed one or he directed one of these films and he in the other uh he produced and wrote uh the film. Um so the the former being Crimson Peak, the latter being scary stories to tell in the dark. Um, and, uh, actually, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, uh, was directed by Andre Overdahl. I hope I'm not butchering your name. Um, and of, of course, that's a classic adaptation of the classic book series by Alvin Schwartz. Uh, so that's, that's what we're doing this week. So, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was part of my childhood i'll say it was a vital part part of my childhood because by the time i i was telling chris this off mic um by the time i got to see 
Child's Play 3, which is what turned me into a horror fan, I was very, like, unfazed by Chucky. Like, I wasn't scared of him. Uh, and I think part of that has to do with a lot of the fucked up shit that I read when I was a kid. So if anybody remembers, like, The Girl with the Green Ribbon or Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, like, these books were, like, not for the faint of heart. Like, I knew kids my own age that read them and thought they were terrifying. I slept like a fucking baby after reading these stories. I, I agree. I think... Which says something about my mentality. Like, I was fine. The girl with the green ribbon really fucked me up. But the rest of this was fine. I I, I agree with Rye. Uh, scary Stories to Tell in the Dark uh, is one of these classic uh, gateway into horror pieces from the 90s. Um, I remember, I, I don't really recall owning the second and third novels but i definitely remember picking up the first one uh at at a scholastic book fair in elementary school i forget what grade it was but uh obviously the score the stories are you know they're simple they're uh they like strike the imagination like white hot and like a lot like white hot iron or iron it's uh i was actually uh listening to a bunch of these stories again because some time ago actually it's pretty recent actually um i think last year um they released a audible collection of the of all three editions um and i was just having a blast uh like listening to it like i think like the the sound design and the narration especially um the the voice actor they hired um it created it just accentuated the experience and it, it really took me back um and i could definitely cite scary stories to tell in the dark um as one of my form formative or at least like my introductory um pieces into horror i mean around that time uh you know what's it called um are you afraid of the dark uh, yeah, really big. Midnight Society. Yeah, exactly. Um, goosebumps. Uh, goosebumps, of course. The, the, those goosebumps are, is great. Are you afraid of the dark, though? Like, okay, hold on, hold on. I feel like there's a large community of people that like watched. Are you afraid of the dark? And like they watched it, and it was part of their childhood. Then I feel like there was a group of people that watched like Are You Afraid of the Dark, and then became like true crime aficionados. And like, uh, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> that tracks. And then there are some people that never watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? And let me tell you, it shows. Yes. You were not uh, traumatized okay. enough as a child to like oh deal God. with today. And it shows. I, I, I remember like the one episode that like, oh God, I barely remember the plots. I literally haven't watched Are You or Are You Afraid of the Dark since I was a kid. You can't, I, let me guess, you can't remember anything about the plot or the story, but you just remember that one moment that fucking terrified the shit out of you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I, anyone who's listening right now, please let me know if there's, like, some way to find it, like, short of piracy. I'm sure, like, Boomerang or VRV or some network out there is restreaming it. Um, Someone must have it, but I remember this one scene, and th they always replay this scene in like the commercial bits for for the show. Um, I just remember like there's this kid. I don't remember if it was a boy or girl. 
but they're just they're stuck they're, they're like at the edge of the pool and all of a sudden like this red bloody red corpse skeleton starts rising from the edge of the from like the deep end of the pool and it's like oh <laughs> so uh dude that messed me up so much um but i love so i love are you afraid of the dark um obviously a lot um when, when growing up i also uh, I was super big on Twilight Zone, uh, still am, uh, and um, I watched a, a bit of Tales from the Crypt. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of like literary literary stuff, like Scary Stories to Tell the Dark was definitely a formulaic stuff. Uh, other stuff I would cite as really, uh, really important on my impressionable brain was like you know Bram Stoker's Dracula, Marishay's Frankenstein, Edgar Allan Poe. All that good stuff. So I was sort of reading like Edgar Allan Poe alongside of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Because I had read like Moby Dick, Frankenstein, Phantom of the Opera at an earlier age than when I was reading like Goosebumps, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I found Goosebumps by accident. There's one Goosebumps book that I've never been able to finish. I think I've talked about this before. Oh, no, we'll refresh the people's. Um, it was a shoot. So R.L. Stein had like the Goosebumps book and then the Fear Street books. And I've never read any of the Fear Street books, but I read a ton of Goosebumps when I was a kid. And he also had a series of like choose your own adventure Goosebumps. Books. Oh my God. I remember the, I, 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 I remember only reading one of them and it was when like, like a bunch of kids uh went on a field trip to like a rainforest and this kid eats i don't know like i just remember like you're on a you're on a field trip at a rainforest and then you eat or a bunch of weird crazy stuff happens to you one of them includes like eating a dragon shaped fruit that turns into like a lizard demon oh that was so cool anyway sorry mine was taking place at a wax museum and if you even like look at the even the cover of this is unnerving and I remember I was reading this book on a beach. So I was in view of the sunshine. I was in public. Everything that sort of goes against like your quintessential horror rules. And I was so freaked out by this book. I could not finish it. I've never finished that book. I don't know what happens at the end. I even like tried to just keep reading the book like a normal book. I couldn't do it. I've never finished that book. And I kept, re I kept reading Goosebumps after that. But I've never finished that book. It terrified. I don't, honestly, I think if I read it now, I'd be like, what's the big Megillah? But for some strange reason, this particular book scared the shit out of me. Uh, crazy idea. Uh, you know, what, if we do this as a bonus episode or a Patreon thing or as like a special Goosebumps episode, I think it'd be really fun to get a Goosebumps book, one of those Choose Your Own Adventures, maybe that particular Wax Museum book, and we read together and and try to survive that Choose Your Own Adventure book together um, and uh, re record it. I think that'd be really funny. Okay, done. We can do that. Yay! <laughs> also, I love how we're like 20 minutes of the episode we haven't actually started to talk about the movies. <laughs> No, we haven't, but that's okay. So basic. So we, well, to be fair, we went from the impact that Alvin Schwartz's writing had on us as a kid to everything else that did, which is totally fine. But the one thing, apart from, I'll say one thing else about the scary stories to tell in the dark books before we start with Crimson Peak, is 
He's not wrong. They really are scary stories to tell in the dark. Like you can tell these at sleepovers or at campfires. And I think what makes it even better is that the drawing, like the artist that that did the drawings to accompany all of this. Some of these drawings are unnerving to say the least. Um, most of them are extremely iconic. But the one that really always freaked me out of all of them, and I think it's just because it's something so simple, was the drawing that accompanies the white satin evening gown story. Because you have like a dress hanging up with one disembodied foot and the other one is obviously like not there. Is that, was that um, the inspiration for the pale woman in the movie? No, the pale woman is actually like a real, um, a real drawing. I think it's in, I think the pale woman is in more scary stories, actually. I think it's in the second one. So the movie sort of jumps all over the books. Yeah, as as Rise searching for the page, um, just a couple of notes about the artist. Uh, so it was originally illustrated by Stephen Gamel, or Gamel, um, and uh, this was an interesting piece of trivia. In 2011, Harper Collins uh, produced. I, I'm not sure if it was like a different edition or that if that was um, like a special anniversary edition. Maybe not necessarily the 25th anniversary edition. Rise reading from right now. Uh, but it featured new art by Brett Helquist, which caused a bunch of controversy among fans. So I haven't—I I admittedly, I've never seen the artwork by Brett. But like Stevens, Stevens' original artwork is just so stark, so iconic, and such nightmare fuel. Which is why, like, these original books were so hotly controversial. Um, um. I know it didn't happen um, in my... Oh, that that's so cool. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so Rai, Rai showing me um, the picture of the pale woman, which is like pic, a picture-perfect replication um, in the in the movie. But... um. Well, that's Harold. And yeah, yeah, Harold. Yeah, Harold is like, it's like probably like the capstone um, on all the movies uh, advertisements. Uh, Harold has a pretty lengthy um, scene, um, or I guess uh, Harold's probably like the the capstone of like the first act in the movie. Um, but I was saying before, like I, I know this book ha is not without controversy. Um, according to the American Library Association, it's one of the most challenged books of the '90s, uh, and uh, it deals with a lot of macabre topics and, you know, uh, not without saying, like, murder, cannibalism, like, body horror, um, and uh, it's a, a bunch of parent groups have tried to remove it from libraries and ban it from schools. Um, fortunately, m my school wasn't subject to that, so I was like, yes, give me, corrupt me, yes. So I was very, um, I was very, uh, yeah, I, I I think it would have been very sad to live in a school where this this book was, you know, banned. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think... Yeah, we didn't have any of that, and I feel very fortunate that, like, you could check out... The only... The librarian never was concerned when you checked the book out. It's when you were me and you checked it out basically as soon as you put it back. Mm. Like, I would give it back to them. I'm like, great, can I check it back out again? They're like, no, it has to go on the shelf. And I said, okay, well, how long is that going to take? And they're like, maybe a day. And I said, great, I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> that was more of a concern than you taking out the freaky books. Like, you didn't get a call home for that, but you got, like, 
a concerned conversation with a teacher if you decided to check that book out like multiple t- like multiple days in a row. You want the you want the concerned phone call would be I would call I would call my my parents and be like hey um it's great that your kid is supporting the local library but they've been checking they checked out this book thirty times uh you know uh, if you won't buy them the book I will <laughs> right exactly I know that there are libraries out there that are at least school libraries and public libraries that didn't have these books so I feel really poorly that there are kids that didn't get to grow up with these books. And I feel, I really do. I feel bad because even if you don't end up growing up and liking horror, these books change you. Love them or hate them. They still change you because of the way they affect you. Well, I think this is this is a nice transition. Um, so with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the movie, which came out uh, last year, I believe. Yes, last year. So to bury the lead, I'm I'm not quite sure if I thoroughly like enjoy this movie as much as uh, like um uh, Del Toro's other films. Like I, if you remember from last episode, I love The Devil's Backbone, and I still love Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and granted, this is a great assault. Um, uh, Del Toro wrote the movie and produced on the movie. Um, so. Uh, he had a, a a very large influence on it, but he didn't have complete control over it. Um, and it shows, yeah. Um, so like, there are certainly parts I love about this movie, like uh, the CGI or and the the practical effects, uh, or just like how they transform the pale woman and Harold uh, to life. Um, and there's a lot, it's, this movie, from a creature-freature standpoint, it's great. Um, I thought it had a lot of really nice jump scares. Uh, but in general, I just, I, um, I felt a lot of the movie, um, like, I was surprised it wasn't an, an anthology film. Um, it was more, it was more like a one overarching film. And th- many anthologies, it tried to weave a thread of narrative through it. And that, that narrative was um, Sarah was his avenging ghost. And um, it was more of a larger narrative of, of like the transformative power of stories on the human mind, the psyche, and stuff like that. Um, but that, I think that subtext got lost um, just because I feel like the the plot just got felt really stagnant or some of the plot feel forced and there was just some plot elements like i felt like didn't really make sense or didn't have like the emotional payoff to um that it meant to be um but then when i was thinking about it later like why i mean i i enjoyed individual moments of this film i not quite sure if i enjoyed it like i as a like like a five out of five as as a f- entire film experience um but then i tried to like dissociate myself and i think the reason why i didn't enjoy it as i think as i thought i should um is because i'm not the target audience for this film um the i think the target audience for this film is more for adolescents it's more for people or more for kids to uh if they've if they're not comfortable with horror or they're new to horror they want to try out 
Uh, I feel like this movie, much like the books of were back in the 90s, I think this movie's more meant to be a gateway into horror. Uh, it's, it's more geared towards, like, a younger audience. Uh, that's And, like, when looking the, at the film that way, then I can it start to click me, like, oh, okay, I get that. And so, um, it, because I, I don't think, like, the writing is... I think the writing's a little bit spoon fed to you. I don't I don't think it was as cl- clever or as as nuanced or as deadful as Del Toro as as some as some of Del Toro's other work is. Um but I think that's just cuz I don't think it's it's dumbed down, but I think it's just it's written, it's a different tone, a different approach um for a different audience that's not me. Um but that's that's my hot take, that's my rant on it. Okay, so because you said all of that, we're just going to go backwards. We're starting with scary stories because I have so much to go off of with that. So we're going backwards. We're starting with scary stories, and then we're going to talk about Crimson Peak because Chris just, like, said so much, and I just – I'm not going to be able to, like, hold on to it. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I ran a rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 It's fine. So here's the thing. Sarah Bellows – um, so I, like Chris, was very confused when I heard that Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was going to be a movie. And initially, I was under the impression, now Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I remember seeing the trailers and the way I remember this movie being marketed is that I remember it showing you that Guillermo del Toro was sort of like at the helm of all of it. Yeah, I, 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 it might have been like the Berenstein effect or like the Nelson Mandela effect where like you knew, thought you knew something, but it was actually something else and your brain kind of like right. messed with it. I thought like Del Toro had complete control of everything, but then we, we actually found out about it. It's like, oh no, he only wrote and produced it. And that's fine. And on all honesty, I think it, I think that it makes for a good episode to sort of compare a movie that Del Toro had complete control over. Because he was directing, writing, producing, versus a movie where he only sort of dipped his toe into one aspect of it. And I really do think it shows. I think to this movie's benefit, the monsters they show you are done on a black and white and gray scale. So they look like they were plucked out of the novel, which I thought was incredible. I thought that the makeup team that was behind all of that, absolutely fucking amazing. However, some of these monsters were either straight up made up or they were a combination of the monsters from a couple of different stories. Specifically the ghost with the big toe. The, the big toe, that one. And then the other one was, um, oh, what was that story? Uh, the Jangly Man. The Jangly Man, that's right. It's a combination. He's not real. He's not in the book. Yeah, it's loosely based on that story where, like, the head falls out of the chimney. Um, but they just kind of, like... Well, the one that falls out of the chimney was uh, Mitai Doty Walker. But the way that story ends is that the dog has a response That's to right. it. And instead, the dog is an actual dog and just sits there and growls. And then th- this disembodied body reassembles itself and becomes the jangly man. So that's also like a real contortionist that is playing the jangly man, which again, you know, kudos. And um, someone that del toro has used before in his films also makes an appearance javier botet plays the ghost with the big toe so there's obviously people he knows that he's used before that's in this movie and i think that's great the one thing that this is lacking is having that distinct del toro spin on it and 
I feel like Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, A, absolutely should have been an anthology or a TV series. It doesn't work when you try to string a narrative on top of an anthology series like this. It was kind of like watching World War Z. Uh, <laughs> I think World War Z is a is a is a bigger center uh, of that than scary stories. I will die on the hill because I hate World War Z the movie. I the movie is great by itself. When you look at it as an adaptation of the book, I think it suffers in comparison. And I think the same thing of this. When you look at it as an adaptation to the stories that you grew up on, I feel like it suffers in comparison. I feel like there are things that you could have achieved. By not stringing this together with one fucking narrative and doing all of this shit. Interestingly enough, that decision was by Del Toro. Like Del, it was Del Toro, Del Toro who, who he was mentioning uh, at a panel or an interview the reason why it wasn't an anthology series. Uh, and I think um, when originally when they were talking about it before he got sidetracked to do other projects like Hellboy um and some uh, like the hobbit trilogy uh he was saying how afterwards he thought it would make more sense to do as one single story uh and like the thread that made it him convinced it would have been a better way to make it one story was the whole plot device of oh you don't read stories stories read you and how this the specific idea of these stories writing writing themselves um for the characters or basing or basing themselves on or preying on the fears and anxieties of the children themselves i love del toro but i call bullshit on that comment because I think that this also ties in really well to pairing this up with Crimson Peak because Crimson Peak, the movie, and Crimson Peak, spoiler, the book that Edith Cushing ends up writing, she uses the ghosts as a metaphor throughout the entire book. Ergo, throughout the entire movie, the ghosts are used as metaphors for other things. Del Toro loves those Im that imagery. He likes using the ghosts as a metaphor to tell a bigger part, like a bigger story. Just like the ghost of Santi and and what that was about on the backdrop against the Spanish Civil War. All of this shit. He's very intentional when he uses things like that. So I call bullshit when I hear him make a comment about that because this feels really lazy in comparison to the way that he does other things when he's directing. Well, th this is also put into a grain of salt that like Del Toro didn't have complete control over this project. Like, you know, he had a director, he had, yeah. So, okay, in his other films, he says that he gets very inspired by, especially in Pan's Labyrinth, by Mario Brava. Mm -hmm. Bava, excuse me, Mario Bava. And where, and where he likes to use red as like a highlight of a scene. The red was a low light in these movies. So I feel like even that, something gets lost there. And I'm not saying the ghost should have been, I'm not saying he should have like crimson peaked scary stories to tell in the dark and like made all the ghosts red or a color no that would have been fucking stupid i thought it was ingenious that they made them on a grayscale but it just feels like he he took the wrong thing and ran with it one comment he made that i think if he tried to use this and wove it through an anthology series could have worked but it felt like he was trying to tell two different stories and i think that's what really bothered me so we had the sarah bellows timeline but then also Guillermo del Toro said that the reason why the film takes place in the 60s 
not the 80s when the books were written, was he saw the 60s, especially 1968, as the end of innocence for the United States because the ghost itself that looms over the town is the Vietnam War. Ergo, ghost is a metaphor. It's not the Sarah, it's not the Bellows family. It's the Vietnam War. But he's trying to tell two different stories in this by weaving in Sarah Bellows and the Bellows family and the Vietnam War shit. I think, well, two things. So um, so I'm, I want to read you, uh, this is from Bloody Disgusting. So this is a partial transcript of Del Toro uh, during a San Diego Comic-Con panel uh, about the reason why this was not an anthology. So quote, when we started talking about this about five years ago, I had to think about it. Anthology films are always as bad as the worst story in them. They're never as good as the best story. Uh, yada, yada, yada. The, um, uh, so this is, so this is not the, quoting the article. In other words, Del Toro didn't want to set the film up for failure by taking the expected anthology approach. And oddly enough, it was Pan's Labyrinth that helped him crack the plot. Del Toro explained, uh, then I remembered in Pan's Labyrinth, I created a book called The Book of Crossroads. I thought it could be great if we, ha we could have a book that reads you and it writes what you're most afraid of. Then the theme became stories we tell each other. Um, so yeah, that's, that. yeah, so I want what's your take on that? This is straight, well, this is Del Toro at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. Straight from the horse's mouth and all still completely valid. However, I still think it was a mistake to try to weave those two stories together. You could have achieved all of that by creating his normal thing that he, his normal um, storyline that he does, which is creating uh, almost a metaphor around a particular ghost or a memory or something like that. You absolutely could have kept that. And still done this, even without an anthology. I think it still could have been successful. The downfall was him thinking that you needed another driving storyline throughout all of this. Where his movies succeed is that subtle B-plot that always exists, which is the ghost, is the metaphor. His A-plot didn't need to be Sarah Bellows. You might not even have needed it because you have Del Toro sitting there doing all of this. Like, I just... I think something was lost there. Again, I think I think this is probably a thing. Yeah, I think it was probably a thing where like Del Toro lost creative control or he got voted out or like the director or whoever else on the team they wanted to take another direction. And uh, my my thought of this again going back to my original uh mini rant of how I think this I think the tone and the audience is meant for uh young adults. Um when you because i was watching the film and i was like what where is this vietnam war thing subplot going um and then when you look at the film as like a coming of age story um and when you look at the characters as like trying to quote unquote grow up trying to work past your your own your own weaknesses your own faults your own anxieties uh, and uh, try to, you know, grow up and and face your fears kind of thing. These are all, like, very young adult uh, conventions and tropes uh, that you, you see in a lot of other stories, and that's, I think it, it feels, like, a little bit too heavy-handed here in the story. And, 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 like, for example, uh, you have the main character who's 
not confident in herself and her writing abilities or being afraid that people won't get her voice or won't appreciate her unique voice. Um, You have the dad. The dad is being held back as a father because he's dealing with a lot of emotional baggage from their mom leaving. And then you have Ramon, who he's holding on to what's left of his childhood, his adolescence, his, and he, cause he's a draft dodger. Like he's been draft, he's, he's been on the run on the land for two weeks um, because he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to be sent off to a battle that he doesn't feel like he doesn't have, a, have, um a skin in the game for uh so when you look at from that point as a coming of age story uh then all all the all the a plot and the b plot is all of a way like the a plot like with cerebellos and the whole story you read stories stories reads you and then how the main character she um she effectively like defeats sarah the ghost by saying okay i'll tell your story i'll tell it honestly i will give you a voice i'll i'll use my voice to give you to give your voice her, her, basically she saved the day through writing that's like, like that's literally what happens and then like the the b plot uh ends when ramon like accepts his responsibility um uh regardless of whether you know what regardless of what, what you felt what you feel about the vietnam war or about war in general uh he uh, he makes like the conscious decision to like uh, you know go to war, um, and I think that was so that, that's like th- like that's like three levels or four levels of plot that's all meshing together. Like you have you're trying to do the A plot, which is like a coming of age story for well, there's there's the A and B plot, uh, which is actually a subtext or a metaphor for like coming of age between two different individuals and then you have like the creature feature stuff uh and then you have enveloping or in, i guess informing all of those other stories is trying to squeeze in the original scary story short stories uh and and that's in the screen so um that's a long way of saying this movie's trying to do too much of course and i think so there's something that also needs to be said so you said that you think that part of the reason why you didn't like this movie is because it wasn't a, you weren't the target audience is that it's aimed at youth adolescence because that was sort of the age group that Schwartz was going for with the books do you think that there is some small part of why this movie is written the way it is because maybe del toro did not read this at that influential age because it wasn't a part of his upbringing. It wasn't a part of where he was growing up. And he might have read it as an adult and thought, yeah, I can do this. So he might have missed something there. See, the thing, when I, when I think of Del Toro, and I, when I think of his foundational text, you know, I think of a Del Toro, you know, as a fan of, like, classic fairy tales and fables and parables and mythology. Um, and... Del Toro, Del Toro is the type of person who finds beauty in the horror. He finds beauty in the monsters. You clearly see that in Crimson Peak. We've seen it in Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and, uh, you know, referencing Santi and the creation of Santi, he, te- he creates Santi, the ghost of this kid, with such tenderness and care. Um, and with 
scary stories, it's like the the purpose of the monsters, it's not meant to be like a metaphor or um extended or something that's symbolic. Uh, for the for the purposes of this film, the, the creatures are meant to scare the shit out of you, and it does that. I mean, I, but I don't think I think where Del Toro's skills lie here is using his producer's eye to how to figure out how to take how how do how do I adapt this to the screen? Um, what what like whether he had. A direction on how the jangly man should move or what makeup tricks will look best um but i honestly don't think del toro had any input onto the the underlying design philosophy like 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 the the reason why um or like the like the subtext of what these creatures meant like i think it was just it was just more from a actual craftsmanship uh logistical standpoint that he had um input on because like these monsters like they they're they're just creatures uh that are meant to like terrify and meant to make you jump out of seat and it does that well i mean i love the pale woman i love i think that's probably one of my favorite and i love harold i think those are fantastic feats of like practical effects and cgi where wherever they they stuck them in but i don't think it fits with what we normally see from del toro um in terms of how he treats his monsters i just think that the care and tenderness that you see and the beauty that you see del toro put into his ghosts was not evident here now granted if i watched this and i saw them come out pretty i would i would have been equally as pissed so i don't think that it's not what this is about yeah because it's not it's not honoring Schwartz's vision, yeah. Exactly, and I don't think that that's what this was about. I think there was a way to keep that element, but also just make it f- make it flow better, make it more cohesive. There was definitely a sense of lost cohesiveness in in this movie, and that's really it's really upsetting because I don't think it takes away anything from the books, but I kind of hope that if you didn't like this, it drives you to read the books or listen to the books because it just it does something different and you can see the differences like i marked where all the differences were between the stories and and the book and the and the movie and it that didn't even i don't even think i had enough energy to be upset about it because it wasn't the point but i think the feeling that i was left with was that i needed this to be different than it was Maybe if you had made it a movie and you hadn't included the Cerebellos plot, or maybe you it needed to be an anthology. I don't know. But this needed to be something different than what it was. I think that the special and practical effects department were perfect. I think the ghosts were perfect, apart from the jangly man. You have three books of, of content to work from. Why did you feel the need to make up your own ghost? I don't fucking know. There were other stories that were mentioned in the book that that the main character was reading out of that didn't get their own tale sort of like displayed on screen. But why invent a whole, this also sort of kind of pissed me off the more I think about it. Why make up a fucking ghost when you have literally three books? Because they're trying to shoehorn shoehorn in in, in, in like a connected plot where it could have been like, as your t-shirt is wearing right now, it could have been like trick or treat. It could have, it could have been, it could have like, 
like the like the, with trick or treat like the framing narrative is, is like the well the quote unquote framing narrative is like it's all taking place in the same Halloween night. It's all taking place in the same neighborhood, and like uh this creepy kid in a scarecrow costume shows up from time to time um but like all the stories that you see in trick or treat are largely independent of each other um and it's like a it's yeah it still counts as anthology film i really wanted start scary stories to be like a anthology film or you could you could just treat it like a much longer version of like like are you afraid of the dark like a bunch of kids are are sitting around a campfire roasting marshmallows and they're 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 trying to out scare each other and like each kid brings to the table um their own story so one kid tells the story of Harold uh one kid tells the story of uh the alligators or something like that you know and I thought I think that would have I think that would um I think I would appreciate that appreciate that more because like I was so bored by like the attempts to connect the film all together with the A plot and the B plot. And okay, before you talk about the other thing that turned you off, I could not fucking agree with you more. That is ingenious. Chris just rewrote this whole fucking movie in like three <laughs> seconds. No, I'm not kidding. That is ingenious. Yeah, I didn't boy. think of that. But again, that could have been more successful. You have your anthology, you could have gotten everything else. The ghost could have been right. Perfect. And you still could have had that singular plot of all of the same of all of these kids that are seemingly affected yet unaffected by these stories. Right. Why? Why? This is why. This is why. Why? This is the same question I asked like when Andy and I create crazy pitches for for on Super Nerd Pals. It's like uh, we should be working in Hollywood. We need to start our own studio. That's the all. <laughs> To be fair, apart from your whole movie we shall never speak again subplot scenario, the rest of it's fine. You know, now that I think about it, like, the fact that they chose the 60s as the set piece just seems really random to me. Like, especially with, like, I mean, especially, yeah, especially because, like, oh, like, this book was really big in the 90s. I, I, don't, I don't know if they're trying to capture the, the zeitgeist of like the 80s movies with like you know kids on bikes or you know stranger things like which is that same aesthetic if you tried to go for that like you know you, you see that with classic classic old-timey cars um kids on bicycles uh no cell phones no no social media it, the kids talk of walkie talkies you could could have done the same thing and said in the movie in the early 90s where this book was coming out the same time where phones weren't that very advanced and like kids didn't have that and like kids still you know went out to play outdoors or ride their bikes around and get into trouble um um i you know i i would have you know if, if i had my movie it would have been that campfire plot but set in like 1991 1992 where like a bunch of kids you know told their parents oh they, they all told their parents hey i'm hanging out at this other friend's house uh and then and then and then they're hanging around a different friend's yeah. house yeah the, each each friend tells the, the oh i'm hanging out at a different friend's house so they're all unsupervised they're all alone uh and they're in the middle of the woods just hanging out um camping unsupervised uh no parents uh and uh they're just having good times telling scary stories and that's that's the setting i i want because that's the setting that that's that, that this book that they're trying to death was born out of okay, that's my first rant 
My second rant is that I honestly didn't like. I I really didn't feel a lot of sympathy for the kids, the kid characters, or like the main cast. I want them all to die. Yeah, like like okay. I thought mo- like all of them were annoying. Um, I thought like I thought like um. Like okay, so Ramon, the, you're supposed to feel sad for him ab- about being a draft dodger, but like I don't, I don't feel bad for him. I want him to keep running. Yeah, but the, the thing is, like, like I don't, I don't know. If it was just like the writing or like the acting, but I just felt zero. I just didn't feel like any. I didn't, I, I didn't feel really moved to sympathize or empathize with any of these characters. I thought like, oh, these. I honestly, I, I, some, some parts of the movie were really hard for me to get through because I was just so bored and like I, I, I just didn't want, I just couldn't sit through like the, uh, some of these character dramas. Like I, I really didn't feel like there was a lot of, I didn't feel like these characters were as close knit as like the people, the like, like the, the cast of the Goonies were or the Sandlot or Stranger Things. I didn't feel like they were that close knit of a fan group. Um, and I especially thought Chuck or Charlie was super annoying. I, they, it was like, I felt it was like a, um, oh God, uh, jeez. I felt it was like a ripoff of, um, oh my God, why can't I remember? Uh, Rod, remind me, who's the kid who has the, the potty mouth from, from it? Um, oh, hard. I'm sorry? Finn Wolfhard. Yes, Finn Wolfhard. Yes, He's yes. My favorite. No, no. Well, the character's name. Oh my god, I can't remember. Oh, Eddie Trashmouth. That's right, Eddie. No, yes. not Eddie. Sorry, Eddie was a different one. It's Richie Trashmouth Tozer. Yes, yes, Richie. Richie. I'm saying it. beep beep Richie. Yeah. So like, yeah. So I I thought like the like Charlie or Chuck was trying to emulate Richie, but it was so poor. Like it was just. Yeah, like it was all the it was all the raunchiness and none of the charm. It's like yeah, yeah. It's like they split. It's like they spit him into two and forgot that there was another half to him because he's human. Yeah, yeah. So I was deeply. I was just like honestly, the only kind of nostalgia that this movie made me feel was nostalgia for the books. Like I immediately went looking for my copy of all three of these books which again, I am holding up in front of Chris and they still smell wonderful. Um, It made me nostalgia for all three of these books and it made me go looking for them to reread them again. So I don't, and I hope, I really truly hope that if you never read scary stories to tell in the dark, that this movie didn't completely put you off and that you actually allow yourself to. It's because it's I think it's just too many cooks in the kitchen. Like, um, like I, Del Toro, Del Toro, like he, he didn't even work on the screenplay. Like his credits was on the story. So it was like the, the general concept and, 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 and producing. Uh, but I know there, there was two different story or there's two different screenwriters. And then Del Toro was producing the story with like three other people. Uh, and then in terms of production, obviously del torres like gets top billing for producing but there's also there's also like three other four four other producers as well so uh there was a lot of voices a lot of um i guess a lot of uh competing influences or or aspirations and i yeah too many cooks in the kitchen i think that's uh an apt 
summarization of what happened um, behind the scene. And it's just a different way of looking at what happens when Guillermo del Toro doesn't have full voice and full control over a film. When it's not something that comes from him where he's not directing and he's not getting his like nooks and crannies into everything where he doesn't have a say in everything. And when he's not completely and fully involved in a production from start to finish. You know what we should talk about? Crimson Peak and how much we fucking we talk about. It. I think we, I think we, I think, I think we talked enough about scary stories, and I, I think, uh, let's let's balance out like these these hot takes with something that Ryan and I clearly both love, Crimson Peak, like this, like this this fantastic throwback to uh, gothic horror or goth or gothic romance, gothic horror. Um, a big horror horror movie set in like a giant house where the house itself is just as much as the character as like uh the characters and like um it, it's really interesting. Like I was um uh, uh I, I'm only setting like the inspirations that I you know I know, but like you know some big influences here were like uh, Jane Eyre or. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, like specifically, The Shining was a really huge um, influence on Del Toro to create a living, breathing, large set piece that like felt powerful, overwhelming, and really established tone and mood. And like, um, I think you know the the actual hall, um, you know, did that in spades, um, and um, I think. I remember reading something where Del Toro is like, yeah, like at this at the time, um, you know, found footage or B-rated movies were uh, a dominant zeitgeist at the time, and I wanted to do a, a nice throwback. So he he went back to like gothic romance and gothic horror. It's like hell yeah, and this movie came out, uh, I think like 2016, um. 2015, yeah. So, like, uh, it, it was the, uh, when this movie came out, it definitely stood out apart from other horror movies that were, you know, being released at the time. And I thought it was a really, really fresh breath of air. So, it's funny that you should say that. I was talking about this with a friend of mine, Sarah, who was actually on our Dracula episode. Hi, Sarah. And she, okay, funny story. Tom actually came to see this movie with us. And she was with us. And the three of us sat in the front row because we were super late. And we saw this in theaters. Sarah has zero recollection of coming to this movie with us. And I was like, I guess you really hated it. And she was like watching clips. And she's like, no, no, no. This is really bothering me because I don't remember being there. And I'm like, I 150% promise you. <laughs> there. Tom even remembers you being there like you were there. So... I remember, because I, what prefaced this whole conversation is I texted her and I was like, you know, I'm rewatching Crimson Peak because we're doing an episode on it. And I remember us walking out of this theater, like not, I remember you and I not really liking it too much. Tom just like blindly hated it. Can't tell you why, probably because it was a horror movie or because it was romantic or I don't, I don't know. He, he hated it. He was like, it was a mo it was a meaningless movie with no plot that did nothing. It was forgettable. Okay, sure. <laughs> He's wrong. <laughs> He's wrong. But I have this memory of like walking out of the theater, just seemingly like unimpressed and like sort of like blase about it. But watching it for this episode, I was like, 
Oh, what did I text you? I was like, why am I such a sucker for the elegance of gothic romance? Yeah, because it's, and I was like, because it's hot and sexy and spoopy or something along those lines. And spoopy, exactly, exactly that, exactly that. It is very much like my aesthetic as a human being. So like, why would I hate this movie? So I don't know what it was. Maybe I was in like some kind of mood that day. I have no idea. It's all. It's funny because you mentioned because like Sarah, like she's an awesome guest and like you know she was great on our Dracula episode. She had she has zero recollection of seeing this movie. <laughs> you know, I feel like I, I don't want to speak for Sarah, but I feel like she she and you like have a lot of the same taste. I feel like that that this movie would be so up her alley. I don't know if she ever watched it again since then. She didn't. She was like watching clips and she was like. I'm not even kidding you. I have a zero. She was like, did I have a stroke? Like what happened? Like I, I, it's really bothering me that I don't remember seeing this. I'm pretty sure you have this wrong. And I was like, no, even I was like, Tom even remembers it. The three of us, it was sitting in the front row. Like you, like I saw this with you. I think you just blocked this out. Like I, I have no other explanation, but you were there. Like two out of three of us are saying you were with us. I don't know how to explain this to you. But I know, sorry, Sarah, I love you dearly. I'm sorry you can't remember that you saw this with us, but you were there. So the three of us are sitting in the front row with like our necks craned up because we were late. And I just remember walking out like gushing over Tom Hiddleston, but like nothing else. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Tom Hiddleston, Tom Hiddleston, like he just works that seduction so hardcore. And it's, it, it's, it just, yeah, this movie bleeds so much like, sensuality and eroticism and tom is just like yeah tom's just going for it it's very sexual it's a very saucy movie <laughs> in, in like the most victorian way possible which I think is why i love it so much i mean minus the butt that you get to see like that would not be allowed if we were in if we were doing like a true to form like victorian like that would not be allowed but hey, you gotta show off some of that butt, you know. <laughs> we we saw some Tom Hiddleston ass, and it was great. This is just my fangirl coming out. Like, sorry, I think that that was probably what I was like really focused on during this movie, and I wasn't really like paying attention to the movie as it. Oh, it, oh, ghost? What? What ghost? I was looking at Tom Hiddleston the whole time. I really, I really think that that was part of the problem. I was like, there wasn't enough Tom Hiddleston in this movie, even though it wasn't about him, and. Darn it, right? You weren't impartial. You, you, you weren't impartial. <laughs> no, I really wasn't. In 2015, like five years ago, I was so not impartial. Like I was just like Tom Hilson. I was <laughs> drooling. Probably there was, yeah. Um, but also, apparently, Benedict Cumberbatch was slated to play Thomas Sharp before he had to drop out for something else, and then it went to Tom Hiddleston. Mm. And as much as I love Benedict Cumberbatch. I could not be happier for a recast mm. because I think that Tom Hiddleston brings such a sad elegance to Thomas Sharp. And the more I watch it, the more I see it. I watched this movie three times, <laughs> including like today, right before you recorded. <laughs> Especially for that waltz scene. That waltz scene was really oh. cool. I, I love that waltz scene because, um, uh, in an interview, this is this is Chris and I getting really hot and bothered. Yeah, Tom yeah, Tom Hiddleston. Mm. Uh, so the, the it there so the it was two there was two stories like well well one uh, I, I think it was 
So I think I think it was Jessica Chastain who played Lucille. She was talking about this. She was saying how um, when they were doing the waltz scene, they really did do it where the, the candle didn't go out. But then I think Del Toro followed up in a separate interview. It was like, oh yeah, we that happened, but we kind of cheated. It was a double wick, so like the candle could stay lit like even longer. It's like, oh no, <laughs> the magic is ruined. I don't care. It was still magical to me. I don't. I don't care. You can't take that away from me. Um, no, yeah. You can't you can't take the magic of that moment away from me. I want I want to like waltz with a tall, pale, vampire esque British human. <laughs> pale with his cheekbones that can cut steel or cut glass. With those sunglasses, though, I'm sorry. Like the best the best like image is while they're walking, where all the three of them, while he's like courting Edith. And they're walking through the park and she has that beautiful dress on and they're in the sunlight and they have those parasols. And then you see the two sharp, like, siblings dressed in black <laughs> up against this beautiful backdrop. And you're just like, it's like I can relate to these people. These, like these, weird... guys are, they, these guys are dressed as how I feel. <laughs> exactly. Like, if you're like a wee goth child or like a vampire at heart, you're just like, oh, take me now. So yeah, fangirl moment over. Let's actually talk about the movie. <laughs> well, we're, we're very in love die. this movie. This movie's hot. It's it's has sexy people. It has sexy ghosts. It's great. It no, it really does. So okay, I thought you would find this interesting and and wonderful. I watched uh, a lot of behind the scenes about uh, crafting the ghosts for this movie, um, specifically Thomas's ghost at the end. And there's a critique that Del Toro has when he sees Hiddleston for the first time, where he says that in the eyes, the way they had the makeup done the first time, he looks too much like Santi from The Devil's Backbone, which I thought was so beautiful. Even though they obviously didn't keep that, I thought it was so beautiful that someone recognized del toro's mindset and his vision enough to go that far and make it too much like santi for them to be able to scale it back where whereas it wasn't nearly close to what he had envisioned and i find that so poetic and wonderful it's weird because like i felt i saw so much of santi in like this this tom Hiddleston ghost like you saw like the same like the rust colored palette uh in, interacting with his pale skin and like you know del toro's classic scheme of like oh he's leaking fluid out of his out of his face hole again again what is with the hole in the face is that like a thing did he like get punctured does he have a phobia of like does he have tripod phobia is that what it is like i don't who, I just, who like, knows I don't get but it. like yeah like uh tom hilton gets stabbed in the face by by uh, by lucille and then when he shows up the ghost, it's just like, oh, yeah, don't mind me. I'm just leaking out of my face. It's all good. But here's the thing. He also gets stabbed in the chest, too. Oh, yeah. He, he, he gets stabbed. Like... She stabs him in the heart first, and then she goes for the face. But the only thing that you see, like, oozing that Edith goes to touch is the hole in his cheek, which I'm like, okay. But the fact that his eye, like, bleeds red or, like, cries tears of blood while he's dying is just like, ugh, it does things to me. 
But I also think it's interesting that you mentioned, so as we mentioned with the Devil's Backbone, um, Del Toro did things with the background. He made the background just as much a part of the movie as the ghosts and the characters in it. And he absolutely does that, which is, again, something missing from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. He very much makes that a part of Crimson Peak. And what I mean by that is the machine that Thomas is trying to build is sort of like this ghost that sits on the grounds of Allerdale Hall. It's the ghost of the of the family name and the inheritance and all that stuff, even though their money has been long since gone. And that's why they're doing what they're doing throughout this movie is to get money to sort of get that name back and become the very well-off and prestigious sharp family that they used to be. Thomas at the end being that pure white, like beautifully like red rusted ghost is just as much of a haunt on Allerdale hall as that machine is. And with him and that image of him standing in front of it is just so beautiful and haunting. And it, it really just, not only is this haunting, it just, it, it helps drive the conflict. Like the quote unquote final battle is between, um, uh lucille and um oh gosh what was her name wow uh edith i'm sorry yeah and like they're they're just running around with knives and um and then Ju like uh both of them have like really flowy uh, like uh like house row kind of clothing going on and like it's especially jessica chestnut as lucille you see her like wailing like and and uh, this death howl as she's chasing Edith throughout the entire house, like these long, flowy, uh, white robes that she's wearing, stained with blood, just trails behind her. Uh, so Judith, or I'm sorry, uh, Lucille looks like a like a banshee, um, with a knife, and you know it's very purposeful. It looks scary yet haunting. It looks great on camera, and you know, uh, going back to the 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 machine. The machinery is it's it's like they're fighting in a graveyard of machines and uh, it creates tension because like uh, Lucille Lucille's clothing blends with the background of like the 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 the, the blizzard and the snow tipped machines. It's it's all it's all on purpose. Like here, you just see you see like uh, Del Toro's full design philosophy like in play. Like there is no. There is everything has a purpose. Everything is so minute, uh, so nuanced, and it, it serves a purpose. Um, and it really stands apart from scary stories. It really, it really does. And again, I think we mentioned this in the last episode that a lot of Del Toro's spiel is that all monsters are human. And that that's how he sort of feels when he does these movies, especially when it comes to something like The Shape of Water or Pan's Labyrinth. And he made a comment about Crimson Peak where he says, for me, the real horror in all my stories is the humans, not the ghosts. The real horror comes from the human heart and the human spirit. That That is so accurate for Crimson Peak. Exactly. It's reflected in all of his movies, but it's, it's, it's fleshed out in Crimson Peak. You can really see it. And I know I have to think that this was intentional, but you can really see it with 
the color and the portrayal of the ghosts in the movie. And yes, Doug Jones is two of the ghosts in this movie, which makes it better. Yay! Because <laughs> we do live for uh, a Doug Jones moment. I have never wanted to be a more... I've never wanted to be a beautiful monster, except when I watch Del Toro films, because I want him to, like, capture the darkest part of my essence and turn it into a beautiful monster for a movie. Like, I really... I, I would love that. <laughs> I really would. Would you want to be a ghost or a, a hellboy or a, a fish person? <laughs> no, no, I would be a ghost. I'd be a ghost. I would absolutely be a ghost. I There is so much in this movie when it comes to the pain and the suffering, not just of the ghosts that reside there, but of Thomas and Lucille and the relationship that they have with each other and the relation and Thomas's relationship with Edith. And even to go so far as to Edith's relationship with her father and then Thomas's, however brief, relationship with her father as well. And I think the, the, the crux of this movie that also makes this so depressingly wonderful is that Thomas and Lucille have done this before. They find wealthy widows or wealthy single people with families that won't miss them or no family at all. And they take their money to try and fund Thomas's machine to get the sharp name back on the map. Edith becomes the exception because not just because I think she changes who he is as a person, which she absolutely does. And that is a whole separate issue. She changes the his outlook on his sexuality and, and relationships and things like that. But I think where it really truly stems from is they both meet at a point where they both connect, not meet, they both connect at a point where they've both been rejected and they believe in each other. She's she's in the middle of writing redrafts for her story and he picks it up and thinks it's brilliant and wonderful. And then she gets rejected. He believes in her. He gets rejected. His uh, his concept for his machine gets so harshly rejected by her father. And she was like, I saw a defeated dreamer in there. I don't know what the fuck you were talking about. She believes in him. And I think that that binds the two of them together. And I think that that also changes Thomas and transforms him, which you see throughout the movie. But I think that that's what makes makes her different, makes this movie different, makes it have this tragic vibe to it, like all of Del Toro's films. I agree, and I, I think another thing that uh, that's unique about this chain of, of relationships as opposed to the previous three marriages that uh, Sharp had was um, it was always... I, I look at it as like Maslow hierarchy of needs where... Um, the past three marriages, they're very fruitless. They never fully actualize because um, it never... Consummates? Well, not one, it never consummates. And two, it never provided Sharp what he really wanted uh, or what he, he needed to get out of this uh, super depressive funk that he's been living for like the past year out of like isolation and squalor and uh, like... Um, this Don Trotten worldview, and I, I think that's very, uh, that's that's a very interesting and accurate point of view, or where they find solace in seeing each other as rejected or broken people, and you know, by being together, they help each other, and they grow into, they synergize, and they they actualize through 
each other. So it's not so much as a parasitic relationship. It's a it's a codependent relationship and um it's validation validation and it's it's validating each other's existences and faults and weaknesses and vulnerabilities and that's um you know that's so uh, a large part of love and romance is like learning to love another person at their worst um and despite what sharp has done you know, she she still loves him, and it's there's a tragic beauty in all that, and that that fits into Del Toro's wheelhouse and and the the gothic romance and the 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 like the 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 larger genre where Crimson Peak takes a, a a new stab at to reinvent and portray. I I wanted to touch on something that you said earlier about. Lucille at the end of the movie, how she sort of like let loose like a like a banshee. She has that large flowy clothing and things like that. Jessica Chastain in a behind the scenes, like uh, I think of it, I'm pretty sure it was a press junket that she did for this movie. She was talking to someone off of the press junket, and she was talking about Victorian sexuality throughout this movie. And I'm not going to touch too much on Thomas's whole spiel i'm going to focus on lucille's for a second because it pertains to your comment on her dress everything with lucille up until the end is very tight very form-fitting you can it's almost like you can see every every bone in her body with the way the dresses are like molded to her and jessica chastain apparently did a lot of research about women who were just like lucille back in the day and Spoiler alert, Lucille was uh, in an insane asylum. So she thought that, oh, well, what happens when someone goes for that kind of situation? She probably gets put in a straitjacket. She probably needs that sense of control. So she, wearing the that tight clothing feels like a hug, feels safe, feels that sense of control. She keeps everything very close to the chest, just like the keys, just like everything about her. Very poised, very collected. She can let loose at night when no one else is around when she's just with Thomas. Hence the change of clothing. Hence why everything is very like free and unconfined and uncontrolled about her. And I love that that is reflected so beautifully, even just in the costumes. Between that monologue and I think her monologue before they get to Allerdale Hall where she's talking to Edith when they're in the park and they're talking about moths versus butterflies. She goes through this entire rant where like love is monstrous and it makes you do crazy dark things and like uh, yeah like yeah that was like a great monologue she was having at the end. I just need Guillermo del Toro to like make all of the gothic like romance stories he can with ghosts and all of all of that um one thing i will say about the whole about thomas's sexuality specifically is well two things one edith is different than the rest of the wives because she does change him fundamentally for the better the validation that he felt of them meeting led to him I think legitimately falling in love with her and feeling something for her, which is why he even says to the doctor, if I don't do it, she's going to. So you're a doctor. Tell me where to hurt you so that you live through this. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that does happen. That's also why I think the dog was alive because he was like, I just left it out there. I thought it would die. He, he doesn't want to do these things. He's yeah. Like Edith has the stomach to do the truly monstrous stuff. Like she Lucille. I'm sorry. Haha. Lucille, Lucille. I'm so tired. I'm so tired right now. Um, Lucille. Lucille has the stomach to do all the dirty work. Like she's the one who's actively poisoning all the previous wives. She's she's the one poisoning um, uh, Edith with the poison in the in the porridge. Um, and uh, yeah, she's not afraid to cut someone. Like she, yeah, she's not afraid to cut someone or stab someone or poison someone. Yeah, like she does all the dirty work. She's the much crueler of the two. Um, Which I think is hilarious that Jim Beaver's line earlier in the movie that's like, you seem like the more collected one of the two of you. <laughs> Lol. One thing that I wanted to get your opinion on, Chris, are the colors of the ghosts in this movie. And I know that everything with Del Toro is very specific. And I know how he feels about the red ghosts. They died in love and in pain and in the clay, so they're red and and it's very visually stunning. Or black. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Edith's mother was in all black. There was one other ghost that was all in black. I think it was like uh, Lucille at the end. She's playing the piano. She is a black ghost. That's right. She becomes the black lady of the house, or like the black ghost. I think I think they they reference like. Something along the lines of, like, the black ghost, the dark ghost. Um, These are ghosts that never sort of go away. Like, the red ghosts go away at the end of the movie. They've they've met their... They've, like, finished their mission, so to speak. But the black ghosts don't go away. Like, after everything is said and done, you see all the black ghosts in the rest of the movie, but you don't see any of the red ones. Thomas goes away, the red ones fade away, the white one fades away. But you see Lucille still sitting at the piano, which means Mother is in there somewhere. I thought the I thought Mother's ghost was red. Oh no, it was Edith's mother that was black. It was a black ghost. Yeah, Edith's mom is black. Are they black to match the sort of blackness of their humanity and life? Because you don't really you don't really know anything about Edith's mom, but she's not spoken of in a positive light or at all, really. I didn't watch the, the movie three times like you did. I figure I mean, I, I, from what I remember, they just didn't talk about their mom in general. And like, I don't know if that's like a Victorian society kind of thing where like they tried to like, don't get too emotional about it. You gotta, we gotta stay prim and proper about it. But like, I, I think, I guess with Lucille Tracks, I feel like with Edith, like in general, she had, see, it, it, it's weird. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of like a narrative reason about, the ghost being black. Um, and like, I know Del Toro, like nothing, like everything has a purpose. Everything has a hidden meaning or like everything is not, th- there has to be some nuance about it. Well, if you think about it under the umbrella of like revenge and loss, Edith's mom was lost under like a tragic circumstance. I'm assuming maybe she got call. I think it says in the movie, she got cholera or something like that. So she was, Oh yeah. She got the black cholera. Right. That's right. So she was lost under a particular tragic circumstance. So her ghost is black, which is why she's all black and, and spindly. But with Lucille, it's pure revenge. She has, she has a total loss of humanity in life. 
So there's nothing for her to, she should be devoid of color. But also Allerdale Hall is devoid of color. And that is very deliberate in the costuming choice that they have for this movie too. The the house itself is like, there's a rotting wound. Like everything's like broken and like rotting in the inside. It's, and it's literally bleeding. Like, because the, the red clay is just dripping down the walls or it's, it's seeping through uh the floorboards uh so yeah the house is a weeping sore the color schemes for this movie in comparison to scary stories that tell in the dark like they paint two vastly different pictures and i just wish that there was more of a connect between the two of them uh, well as we're talking about lucille i think it's telling that like she's i think maybe no now i'm thinking about it not not to not that it's invalidating your take on it i think i I just as we're talking about it i had just had like an alternate theory about it where uh it seemed like thomas's ghost um stuck around uh to help save loose uh edith and he passed on he just faded away into nothing like he's at rest um and then you know similarly to the other del toro movies we reviewed um you know edith uh, starts and ends the movie talking about what is the nature of a ghost? Is it like a powerful emotion? Is it like it's like is it a memory? Is it like a traumatic feeling? And um, Lucille, we see we we still see her having corporal form, like she still hasn't passed on. Um, so judging by what she what we the audience sees, it seems like Sharp um, Hiddleston like moved on um he's in another place lucille um whether by means of like rise interpretation where it's like she still has like this serious pain this anguish this rage that keeps the light tied in i think of it like lucille is in mourning which you know she's wearing all black she's in a funeral garb and she's mourning that you know she's the one who killed the both of them and she's the one who killed her brother and now she's the one who's responsible for making them making herself truly alone in the afterlife you know that's another spin um of how narrative and some symbolism and um the tower's costume design and his aesthetic choices uh, all wrapped up into a neat bow like there's like nothing when when Del Toro has full control, there's like nothing that's like uh, without purpose. Every everything he does is so purposeful, which is why I think when it comes to someone like Guillermo Del Toro, you either need like all or nothing. So I think it was it was interesting to see a movie where he takes full control versus has none or has very little, and. I just think he he creates some of the most visually stunning worlds. I don't know why you would want to deprive a world of that. Like, and I'm not trying to discredit the the director of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I just don't think that you and Del Toro were like the best match for that project. Can't win them all. I mean, I I understand like Del Toro is very talented. Um, you can see that talent in like the production of the creatures um, and scary stories, but I don't know. I, th- I just think scary stories, there was too many cooks in the kitchen and, and you didn't have enough 
room to play for Del Toro, and that that that's okay, because like, uh, Scary Stories was trying to achieve like a different thing that we are we're so used to seeing from Del Toro, and um, and I I, I don't know. I mean, not to say that Scary Stories was, I'm not, it wasn't a terrible film, but I don't again, I don't think it was the movie for me. Um, and I, I don't think it was the movie I was expecting out of the pedigree that this these stories have for so many people. Yeah, like plain and simple, it just it missed the mark. On that note, what were your ratings, Chris? How do you feel about all this shit? Uh, Crimson Peak, five out of fly. Wow, I cannot talk. Five out of five. Uh, red clay vats. Um, I I know I think I think it's it's uh it's a uh, Classic Del Toro, like, um, it's a wonderful synthesis of, like, horror, beauty, uh, tragedy, uh, really cool, spoopy monsters, um, wrapped up in a throwback to classic, uh, gothic romance, um, uh, I think it has excellent set, sound, and... And design, like, um, and I think that it's a very, it's full of talent from, you know, the top where Del Toro is pumping all the strings to uh, all the individual actors. Um, and uh, I think everyone felt it, everyone had uh, an amazing impact on the film. Uh, like for example, we didn't really talk about him, but uh, what's his name? Charlie N- Dunnan, um, who played the love interest. Um, uh, one of the interesting things Del Toro had to pitch to him about the movie is like, well, uh, I'm flipping this uh, on this head. Your character is actually the damsel in distress, and he, as soon as he heard that, he's like, I'm in, a soul. That's like that's really cool. Um, for oh my god he really was the damsel yeah he got stabbed and then and then then edith had to help him out and hide him and like take on the big bad uh all by herself um scary stories i'll give it like the two and a half heralds out of five um uh i think i taught i i I ranted about this a lot like um i don't think it I think I think there was it was trying to do too much. Um, I really didn't like. I I felt like the the characters. I'm not. This is not saying I didn't. Uh, I'm not disparaging like the actor's performance. Like it could have been the fact that you know they were trying to work with what they're giving him, which it wasn't quite as clean or tight as it should be. But I really didn't feel any sympathy or connection to the characters, or I didn't feel convinced about how tight knit of a friend group they should be um um i think it should have been an anthology film i think i I think that would have been a even even if i'm trying to dissociate it as just a film on its own and not necessarily a adaptation of a book uh, as a film by itself like it's not it wasn't a clean execution um uh, just because of how crowded it was, um, or just how shoehorned like the main plot of the Sarah Bellows ghost was, uh, I would say the best part of the movie is like the practical effects and the creature feature stuff. Uh, I think that's where it definitely excels, and I think that's um, 
you know, on on the part of like the talent of like the 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 whatever practical effects team, the CGI team they're doing definitely like uh Del Toro's input on that. Um and uh and the fact that it just it builds on the original book's super iconic um illustrations. because uh, I think that's so especially for someone who has read the book before, like they'll get so much kick seeing like creatures like Harold or the pale woman, you know, move around uh in the flesh, so to speak. Um but yeah, uh, I I and I I generally feel like this movie was made for someone to be of made for the audiences of the of young adults, adolescents. Um, I, I think this movie was was made it was made to be a gateway horror movie. Now I don't think it's the perfect gateway horror movie by any long shot. I don't. I don't think it's actually a good gateway horror movie, um, so I wouldn't recommend it as their first one. Um, and I'll, I'll, I, we didn't really talk about it, but I think another thing that it shot uh, itself in the foot with is that I thought the the ending was cheapened. Uh, I thought it, they they didn't earn that suddenly go happy lucky happy ending, uh, and they did that. I think just just to set up a, a sequel, and they they try to they're trying to play. They, I know there's a sequel trying to be made into a works, like yeah. So I was like, yeah. So the reason the reason why yeah the uh, the reason why the kids never came back is because uh, we we gotta find out a way to save our friends, and the secret to saving our friends is um uh in this book, and it's her and the dad and Charlie's sister driving off in the sunset. Um, it's a little bit bleak, but it's all, it's, it's, it's mostly helpful. So I don't know. I think that's another reason why I, the movie's like, I was like, they're, why are they setting up a sequel? No, no, I, I, I just didn't, I, I think they, I think it just cheapened the ending. But yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. No, I, I 150% agree with you. They absolutely cheapened the ending. I think that they were trying to go for something that just didn't work. I think that, um, in terms of ratings, I agree with you, like, twofold. I think 2.5 heralds for Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I also think that it's kind of interesting that for Hallmark, like, quintessential horror stories that were meant to terrify you as children, that they change such, like, a minute, crucial part of the Herald story in that story, the kid doesn't get turned into a scarecrow. He gets skinned alive. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, maybe not so scary story to tell in the dark. Like, you know, stuff will straw. Like, all right, the visuals are creepy, but it's not nearly as creepy as reading that someone your age is getting skinned or flayed alive. But, you know, besides the point. Um, if you want a good movie about someone getting, you know, uh, cut open and flayed from end to end. Go watch Bone Tomahawk if you haven't seen it. Just go rectify that situation. Uh, so I agree with Chris that like I'll give it like two two point like I'll give it a solid two point five. Uh, Harold's out of five for scary stories, just because of the things that I feel like it was sorely sorely lacking. Even direct the whole director writer thing aside, there were things it was lacking and and. Yeah, uh, but also 
4.5 out of 5 for Crimson Peak. I mean, whew, what a movie. Beautifully stunning. So many things that you can talk about and cover with that film that, like I said, I could easily just go on for another hour talking about the subtle things that Del Toro included in that movie. Up to and not including, uh, up into and including, um, that Del Toro apparently had the word fear written in the background of every single part of the house in the film. What? So just like little shit like that. So like, so all in all, like, holy shit, more Del Toro is coming. I'm hoping whether we touch on him as a writer or as a director or a producer, what have you, this is not the last of del toro i can i can fucking promise you that i mean he's still working hard um i we 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 haven't covered some other movies um that he's touched and yeah uh so we'll get to those uh most definitely soon uh so stay tuned we love del toro and we hope you love him too and if you haven't you know been exposed to del toro um we hope that these episodes Helped you out and, stir, uh, and uh, spurred you in the right direction to at least check them out. On that note, thank you for listening to another episode of Left for Dread. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Everything helps. You can listen to us on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify every Friday. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Dread Pod. You can find us on Facebook, and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com. And again, thank you so much for sticking with us on our second Del Toro mini marathon. Uh, we have more. To, we have more to look forward to. So uh, sit tight, enjoy these, and uh, your homework assignment until the next episode. If you haven't done so already, just go out, go to Audible, go to go to your local bookstore uh, if it's safe to. Actually, no, don't stay in your house. We're still, we're still, we're still being quarantined. Stay in your house, but support. Um, a, a brick and mortar shop if you have it, and like do some curbside pickup. Pick up um, scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, relive your childhood. If you never read them, read it. It's great. Yes, read it now. Get some nightmare fuel in your brain. Um, and until then, stay, stay dreadful. dreadful.